The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. We are at the beginning of the Christmas season, and it's time to display the Christmas tree. Dr. Mel Kelling knows Christmas trees. He and his wife, Lori, have grown thousands of trees every year at Tannenbaum Farms in Central Michigan. A nationally recognized expert in the Christmas tree industry, Dr. Kelling taught and served in the Department of Forestry at Michigan State University for over 35 years. Tannenbaum Farms was purchased in 1977 as an extension of Dr. Kelling's professional interest and a way to establish a college fund for his children. The first planting in 1978 covered three acres. Today, plantings cover approximately 100 acres on the 180-acre farm. I was introduced to Dr. Kelling through the fine folks at the National Christmas Tree Promotion Board. Their campaign, It's Christmas, Keep It Real, touched me. Christmas trees, what a wonderful idea for an episode. It can take over eight years to grow your tree, so there is not really an off-season on the Christmas tree farm. We will hear right from the grower himself how to select and care for your live tree. We will also discover the story behind the first Christmas tree and how that tradition grew. This is episode 85, Real Christmas Tree Stories with Dr. Mel Kelling, an Encore Remix presentation of episode 33 on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Dr. Kelling, when did the first Christmas tree come about, and how did it spread across the world? The use of greenery that is uh, particularly conifer stock, uh, the various species of conifers, which include pines and spruces and hemlocks and cypress and a number of others, have always been somewhat attractive to individuals because in the winter, they kind of defied the natural processes that were going on. That is, when every other hardwood tree lost its foliage uh, naturally, there was still these evergreen trees, hence the name that implies their green throughout the year, winter, summer, fall, and spring, they were perceived by ancient cultures as having somewhat of a unique attribute and maybe some spirit uh, components that were involved with that. There's history, historical events, and accounts of Egyptians using palm branches and other evergreen foliage prior to the time of Christ. The earlier part of the current AD series of, uh, of centuries Palm branches were used and evergreen branches were used in somewhat mystical celebrations, not so much for Christmas, in fact, I should say not at all for Christmas, but for observance of the winter solstice. That was the darkest, shortest day of the year and the beginning of of winter, really. Here was a celebration that indicated after that 
things were going to be cold, and yet we still had these evergreen boughs that were going to be alive. It always had some mysticism and some history that was associated with the fact that it was an evergreen in a very dark uh, time of the year. The origins of Christmas trees are a little bit varied on this. Again, whether one is, has a secular point of view or perhaps a religious point of view. But Christmas, matter of fact, very frankly, originally was a Christian holiday. And it still is in the minds of many of us. It celebrates the birth of Christ, some of the tenets of what Christianity is all about. And one of the first observances of Christmas as a celebratory and use of Christmas trees is attributed to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was active in the 1500s, of course, known for his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, also known for many of the hymns uh, that we sing, including Luther's Cradle Hymn, which is Away in a Manger. It is alleged that as a monk in a monastery in Germany, that in the winter, he used to stroll out in the countryside a little bit, or on the grounds around the monastery. And on one occasion, on a winter night close to Christmas, he saw an evergreen tree, most likely a fir tree, the genus Abies, and it was adorned with small amounts of snow, and the moon was out and it sparkled. And again, he was made aware of the fact that here is a living tree in the midst of a dead winter scene, otherwise dead because of nothing growing at that time of the year. He cut a tree, brought it inside, and decorated it because it reminded him of one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity, which is eternal life. Regardless of what the winter conditions are, there is an eternal life associated with Christmas. It was a tree that Martin Luther brought into a monastery originally, but it gained acceptance in that community and elsewhere among German inhabitants, German residents, and spread through other parts of Germany. It was adopted quite easily because it seemed to be so fitting for the occasion that they were celebrating. It came to the U.S. during the Revolutionary War with Hessian soldiers who were fighting as mercenaries on the side of the British against the American colonists. In the winter, the mercenaries, it is alleged, decided that it was Christmas. They were from Germany. It was time to cut a fir tree. They were in New England. They probably cut a balsam fir, adorned it with some ornaments of sort, makeshift, I'm sure, and celebrated Christmas. Since there were German immigration numbers that were quite impressive in the late 1700s and earlier on in the 1800s, the others who came into eventually the United States utilized the Christmas season and celebrated that with a Christmas tree. It stayed kind of as a quaint, folksy image among German immigrants for quite a while. Eventually, in the 1850s, the president, who I think at that point was the first to do this, put a Christmas tree in the White House. That gained popularity. After that, it moved out of New England into Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Dutch, so to speak, and it was widely practiced there. After the tree was displayed in the White House, then there began to be a commercial market for natural Christmas trees. There are some accounts of trees being cut in the Catskill Mountains of New York and were transported down to Manhattan and what later became all of New York City. Those were for sale, picked up as other immigrants came across and was adopted and finally became an American tradition. But it owed its origin back to the German mercenaries who fought on behalf of the British. They brought it to the United States and it has spread since that point. What is your favorite Christmas tree story? 
As a professor at Michigan State, when I first came here in the 1970s, it was fairly common at that point in some of the public buildings to have a Christmas tree. And one of the more common ones was the University Faculty Club. We had a research forest called Kellogg Forest that provided trees for this facility every year. The location where the tree was to be displayed could accommodate about a 12-foot tall tree. It was quite impressive, decorated it up brightly with lights and things of that sort. The manager of the forest who brought a tree this particular year, it happened to be a Douglas fir, had a really nice tree, and he measured it. It was about 16 feet in height, but it was such a nice tree, he determined to bring the whole tree here, and he talked to the manager for displaying where the tree was going to be. The manager told him, you know, that tree is too tall. And he said, well, you can just cut off three feet or so, maybe four feet, and make it fit the space. And the manager said, okay, that would be fine. A week or so later, when he came with some other greenery materials, he looked at the tree, and the tree had been cut off four feet at the top. Oh, no. So the tree was up, up, against, <laughs> up against the ceiling, and it was about five feet wide at that point, but it had no topical point to it at all. <laughs> the manager cut the top off of the tree as opposed to shortening the tree by cutting off the base. The tree stayed up for the whole Christmas season that way, but it got a lot of attention, you know. I have seen cartoons mm. where a tree of that happened, and it was in like a two-story house. Someone just had designed a cartoon. They cut three feet off the top of the tree, and they put it on the second floor. So here was the three-foot tree, and so the tree had extended through the ceiling a little bit. And that was a <laughs> <big> cartoon. <laughs> that was a humorous story that I'm sure people who were around at that time can still remember because it was just different. <laughs> but it got a lot of comments, didn't it? Oh, I did. It was attractive. Since that time, of course, the fire regulations and things of, of that sort, other protocols don't allow natural greenery, natural trees because of alleged potential hazards. So now it's a nice artificial tree. I doubt that it was made in Michigan, and I further doubt that it was made in the United States. Yeah. But it's in a public institution, so it's happy. Yeah. <laughs> What's your earliest Christmas tree memory? We always celebrated when we were a small child and had five siblings, and we went to my grandfather's place. Of course, there were no artificial trees at that point, and there were no retail lots where you could buy a tree in the area that we grew up in, in a rural farm community. He would go out and cut a local tree, which in this case happened to be an eastern red cedar. The tree was never displayed until Christmas Eve. We would go there Christmas Eve. The tree had just been put up an hour or so before we came. Good German family never displayed a tree for a week or two or three in advance. Uh, it was Christmas Eve. Sometimes I remember my dad telling me that they went to bed without a tree, and when they woke up, they had a tree. It was always kind of interesting for us to get there just after the tree had been displayed, because otherwise there would not be anything Christmassy in that location. So I remember those incidents quite vividly. What led you to studying forestry and then deciding to teach and research the field? You know, that's an interesting question in that I really can't tell you. I always had a natural affection for the outdoors. I grew up on a farm. We did the typical farm crops, corn, soybeans, cattle, hogs. We had a very large diversified farm as well. But it was just when I decided to go to college, I got a $100 scholarship because of some academic achievements. That was probably the incentive that really encouraged me to go on to a university. 
I really liked going to parks. I liked going to forest stands. I enjoyed the outdoors from hunting to whatever. It was just a very much a part of me. Studied the first year and kind of thought, well, I'll go into forestry. And I had weighed some other alternatives, became a member of a class of about 20 individuals. We all had similar interests. It was a very outdoor-oriented program, very intense, I might add. I think the requirements for a degree were about 12 semester credits, more than for a BS or a BA in most other disciplines. It took more time. I just enjoyed it. It was out of doors. I never regretted that. It's kind of fulfilling to do something that you have always wanted to do that eventually turned into not only a job as a university professor, but an opportunity to start a Christmas tree farm, not knowing much about what I was doing in terms of specifically getting involved in Christmas trees, although I had done some research and some extension outreach in Christmas tree production. Bought 160 acres of land by scraping together whatever we could. This was in the middle 1970s. Sold firewood, tapped the maple trees that we had here on the farm, sold the sap to a neighboring producer, managed to make the payments by renting out some of the cropland, planted a couple thousand trees the first year, managed to keep things alive, sold the first tree in 1983. I think we got $15 a tree, any species of your choice. That gave a little income to buy the planting stock for the following year. We probably sold maybe 100 trees the first year, a couple hundred the second. Third year, it began to increase as we had a little more income coming in. We planted more trees. We ended up planting about right on 100 acres of trees. Sales have picked up significantly. We are way larger than what I ever thought it would amount to be. We came into this primarily with the idea of having a couple of kids that I could help pay for their college tuition, which it did. We now sell about 6,000 cut-your-own Christmas trees plus some wholesale trees, and so we keep busy. I never had a forestry background growing up at all, but it was something that was just kind of in my mind, and it all came together. And the last 45 years in the Christmas tree business have been extremely rewarding to us and kind of fulfillment of a dream, and that's good. What kind of challenges have you overcome? There are a lot of things you have to do in a Christmas tree operation that you cannot do from the seat of a tractor or a sprayer or any other kind of mechanized equipment. To be sure, there are good mechanical pieces of equipment, but there's a lot of hand labor. Every year, every tree is trimmed or shaped. That is a hand operation, a hand operation in which the density of the tree is enhanced by trimming the lateral branches. The shape, the symmetry of the tree is enhanced by that as well. The rate of growth, you prune it in such a way, trim it in such a way that it increases the density such that it's not an open-growing tree. People want a natural Christmas tree to look just like the best artificial Christmas tree they have ever seen. That means perfectly symmetrical, perfectly uniformly dense, not prickly, can hold ornaments, going to have excellent needle retention. So there are a number of things that you can try to build into a natural tree. We have done that. We have certainly changed our species. We started off with species like scotch pine and Colorado blue spruce, white pine, and some Douglas fir, which are all significant species in different parts of the country. We soon learned that we could not produce high-quality Douglas fir. We eventually learned that planting Colorado blue spruce makes a nice tree, but they're very pricky, and some people do not like that. 
Plus, they're subject to a needle cast disease that can cause significant needle loss on the lower part of the tree and on the interior branches. White pine, beautiful tree, but it's a very weak branch tree and one that does not hold heavy ornaments. The tree that we settled on and much of the industry has now is Fraser fir. Fraser fir is native to the higher elevations of the Appalachians, starting in North Carolina and moving north up through perhaps parts of Virginia, maybe a little bit into West Virginia as well. It has a couple of other close relatives. Uh, there's a species called canane fir, actually spelled canan, C-A-N-A-A-N, which grows in West Virginia. It's a subspecies of balsam fir, which grows the entire Appalachian region from Maine and north all the way down to parts of North Carolina. All three of those species have prominence in the Christmas tree industry because they have similar attributes. They have an excellent fragrance. They have short needles. They're soft foliage. Depending on the site, the soil conditions, the locations, some are better suited for some parts of the Christmas tree producing region than others. The true firs are the most popular species for Christmas trees anywhere east of the U.S. In the western U.S., it's noble fir, which comes out of Oregon, Washington, Northern California, and parts of British Columbia. That's a very popular species there as well. How's the Christmas tree industry changed since you've opened Tannenbaum Farms? Not only since we opened the farm, how has the Christmas tree industry changed in the last 30 to 40 years or so? It has changed enormously. When Christmas tree production in plantations began seriously in the late 1940s after World War II and on through the 1950s, it was for the most part a small landowner business. It was not corporate entities or large farms that were basically producing Christmas trees. That was where someone had 80 acres, 40 acres, 120 acres, 160 acres, and they put 40 acres in Christmas trees. The species at that point were primarily in the eastern U.S. was scotch pine. And in the western U.S., Douglas fir was important. Scotch pine was the species that was widely planted nearly anywhere where there was a commercial Christmas tree industry. It is a European species with many different seed sources that are called varieties from the British Isles to the main continent to species that would go under French scotch pine, Belgian scotch pine, a number of other sources that even up into the Scandinavian countries, a different variation in the species that made it adaptable to very cold regions, for example. That species dominated the markets. It was easy to grow. It did not require anything specific with regard to sites. It can grow on dry sites, to some extent wetter sites, heavier soils, sandy soils. It just grew well, had very few insect and or disease problems associated with it. It just had to be sheared every year. It had excellent needle retention, but it was longer needle, maybe two to two and a half inches in length on the average. That was a little bit objectionable for some of the more trendy decorating styles that were coming into existence. Beginning in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and continuing on from then through the year 2000, the short needle fir trees began to move into the marketplace. They were more demanding, as we've talked about earlier, in terms of sight. Many scotch pine growers who were successful growing scotch pine now found the demand for scotch pine decreasing substantially, and in fact, many of them got out of the business. 
furs were much more demanding with regard to fertility and water and did not grow kind of uncared for like Scotch pine did other than the shearing. The industry moved from a very large number of small growers to now seeing a reduction in the number of growers, also seeing an increase in larger farms that began to buy some of the better sites that Scotch pine growers had planted those to fir and now became much larger in growing Christmas trees on a wholesale scale. The industry has maybe kept its volume up, but the number of participants or growers in it has decreased tremendously in the last 40 years. It's now dominated by the wholesale sector by very large farms. We have farms here in Michigan that will sell a half million trees per year or more. And that's true in the Pacific Northwest as well. There are farms in North Carolina which will easily sell a couple hundred thousand trees per year. Would be true also for parts of Pennsylvania, maybe even into New York State. There's still a large commercial production in Ontario and Quebec. In the Pacific Northwest, while Douglas fir is still a significant species, the real emerging species has been noble fir, a sibling, if you will, of the species that grow in the eastern U.S. Larger farms have continued and have gotten larger and larger, and smaller farms have kind of decreased. The Michigan Christmas tree industry, for example, in 1990, probably had 350, maybe 400 members. At that point, 75% of those would have been primarily wholesale producers. That would have been true in the northwestern U.S. region as well. Today, it has a couple hundred members, of which 75% or so or more would be choose-and-cut operations. The popularity of choose-and-cut has increased tremendously as it has been promoted as visiting a choose-and-cut farm, getting the Christmas tree is a part of the Christmas season that is memorable. It's kind of like the old Yule log. We went out and got some wood for the Christmas tree fire, and we called it a Yule log, and you've heard of that story. The choose-and-cut aspect has promoted Christmas trees as a family endeavor, an outing, where you go to a farm, you're assured of a fresh-cut tree, you can participate in selecting it, you can take pictures, you can do a number of things that will be different than buying a tree at a wholesale lot, whether it be one of the big box stores or a service club lot or whatever. Nothing against those. They're excellent sources for a number of people, and that's fine choose-and-cut business has increased in popularity because of the involvement in making this Christmas tree selection a part of the Christmas tree season. Not unusual on a Christmas tree farm that focuses on choose-and-cut to see two or three generations of people all come together as a family to select a Christmas tree, or two or three Christmas trees, depending on who is participating in the visit. The Christmas tree choose-and-cut farm has moved into the wreath business, it has moved into the garland business, it has moved into gift shops, it has moved into other kinds of what's called agritainment, in which it's not just a visit to go get a tree and the kids sit in the car while dad goes and picks one up. No, it's a total family involvement. They feature wagon rides and bonfires and concession stands and Santa Clauses and horse-drawn wagons, in some cases sleigh rides, and that has increased to the point where the number of trees that are sold each year from cut-your-own farms has increased substantially 
the number of Christmas trees produced wholesale has gone down a little bit because of severe competition, of course, from the artificial tree and that industry, but increasingly so from cut-your-own farms and their agritainment destination as well as a source for getting a tree. It's becoming an experience in life and a kickoff to the Christmas season. It is, and Christmas tree operator of a choose and cut farm, he or she is aware of that. They will end up trying to make this an enjoyable experience because it's competitive in many locations. The tree is going to be fresh. Uh, Some people will focus more on large trees. Uh, For example, we sell trees up to 15 feet in height because in the last 20, 25 years, cathedral ceilings and vaulted ceilings and larger living rooms, sunrooms, all kinds of accommodations have been made where there can be a large tree displayed. The festivities that go along with their many different concession operations sell fresh donuts, they sell cider, they sell hot chocolate, they sell things you can do. Many of them will have bonfires. That's a very popular event for people to come and sit around a bonfire. Not everybody gets to do that in urban locations unless they go on a camping trip or something of that sort. It's gotten a lot of popularity associated with the destination location as well as what you're going to see when you get there. Some Christmas tree farms even have arranged locations for people to tailgate, kind of like a football game. And you're going to go there and spend a couple hours tailgating, and if the weather is appropriate, enjoy just being out and about. I'm also a supporter of the National Christmas Tree Association Christmas Tree Promotion Board, which is an organized effort funded by a checkoff system that supports an industry-wide research, promotion, and advertising campaign. Uh, That money is divided among research operations designed to benefit Christmas tree producers. It also supports an aggressive marketing program trying to attract natural Christmas trees, real Christmas trees, to younger families that may have grown up with an artificial tree and have never had the experience of selecting, harvesting, uh, and displaying a real Christmas tree. As a part of that operation, they have developed in the last couple of years a slogan, and that slogan is, It's Christmas, Keep It Real. I think that not only portrays and displays and connects the real natural Christmas tree with the Christmas tree event, it also somewhat subtly, I think, goes back and focuses on the original Christmas story, the birth of Christ, the Magi who were there, the manger scenes, the number of hymns and Christmas carols that have resulted from that. Kind of quietly, it says, let's go back and look at what the real meaning of Christmas is, and then let's celebrate that with a natural Christmas tree. The objective, when you say, it's Christmas, keep it real, not just a natural tree, but let's go back and focus on what Christmas is all about and was about originally. How do you select a Christmas tree? Uh, You make me chuckle on that a little bit, because sometimes I don't think the individual who is selecting the tree knows exactly what he or she is looking for. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Fraser fir has been advertised and promoted in the eastern U.S. as the tree. It is. It's an excellent tree. No problem with that. We've talked about it. Some people will come in, and uh, we sell pre-cut trees as well. I'll say, well, what are you looking for? I'm looking for a Fraser fir. Do you know what they look like? Well, I've heard about them, and they're standing next to one in the barn that is rubbing their elbow, you know. They don't know the species, which is why on every tree we sell, we identify the species. Well, how tall is your ceiling, the room where you're going to display this tree? I don't know. Well, is it 
uh, is it a standard ceiling? Do you have a cathedral ceiling or is it a vaulted ceiling? No, it's just an ordinary house. Well, that's about an eight-foot ceiling, I will tell them. In fact, we have a pole outside here that will show you where six feet is, where seven feet is, where eight feet is, where nine feet is, where ten feet is. You can take your tree and you can put it up against that little pole, and there are markers out there that will let you determine how tall that tree is. This is where your standard eight-foot ceiling is. They will use that as a guide. We've had individuals who will come and bring tapes and bring measuring devices of various sorts, and, and that's all good. So many times I hear the next year, we had to cut off two feet of that tree last year because we didn't keep in mind where it was going to be displayed. I select a tree based on, first of all, knowing what size we're looking for. We're kind of limited on species, so it's always going to be a Fraser if we can find one that's good for that. A good Christmas tree is one in which you place the ornament on branches. You don't lay them on the side of the tree. It needs to be textured to the point where there are hanging spaces in that tree that you can display not only on the outside edge, but back in 10 inches or 8 inches or a foot. You can put an ornament back there. I think some people want a perfect tree when maybe one not quite symmetrical, but not quite uniformly dense will be a much better decorated tree than one that is so dense you have to lay ornaments along the side as opposed to placing them in the foliage. Having all of these criteria in mind prior to looking for a tree allows you, when you find that one, to find one that just exactly fits your objectives. Christmas trees are not like peas in a pod. Everyone is not the same. Some respond differently to the trimming than others. They will develop a dense foliage. Others may not have been trimmed quite as tightly. That is, they've left the branches a little bit longer, so they're a little more spacey. Some people who will come in and say, I have really heavy ornaments. What species of tree should I look for? Probably a spruce, because they have stiff branches. Keep in mind, they're pricky with regard to their needles, but they can hold fishing weights if you want to put them on it in terms of, of the weight of the ornament. Some will say, I have an old-fashioned collection of ornament. I want a very open tree. Do you have any untrimmed trees? that are just natural. Sure we do. We got a few of those. We try to make a tree that will meet and match the objectives that the consumer wants. So far, we've been pretty successful. The average person wants that perfect tree, even though it may be in a corner of a room where they could have gotten a lower price tree with two or three good sides as the one perfectly all four sides around in terms of uniformity of branches and, and no holes and no second things of that sort. How do you care for a tree after you've got it home? Before every tree leaves our farm, and I think this is true at almost every farm, it's not true at some of the larger retail outlets, the base of that tree is recut by cutting off a quarter to maybe three-eighths of an inch of wood. We do that to expose fresh tissue that may be there. Even a tree that was cut on the farm may have gotten somewhat soiled because of dragging it through the soil or in the loading process or something. If it's a really warm day, there may get some pitch exudation that would come out at that point. We make a fresh cut and we tell the customer, as soon as you get this tree home, if you're not going to display it promptly, put it in a pail of water and put it in the garage or some other place where it's somewhat cooler than outdoors or not as warm as on the inside. You may not want to put it totally outdoors if it's really cold and it would freeze. When you get the tree in, we always recommend and we sell tree stands and most shoes and cut operators do that should hold at least a gallon of water. Some actually will hold two gallons of water. That tree, when brought from the outside into a 70, thereabout temperature room, will probably for the first 24 hours absorb between a quart and a quart and a half of water per 24-hour period. And it may do that for a week. 
it is important that the display person never allow that tree to run out of water. In doing so, it will continue to transpire water through the foliage and this warmer environment will absorb air into the vascular tissues. And therefore, when you add water to it, you now have an air blockage in it and it will no longer take up water. That happens particularly if the tree is left, say, for 24 hours without any water and the base of the tree is exposed to the air. It's important to keep it watered. There are a lot of little watering reminders. You can get devices that you can put into the water bowl that will make a little tone or a whistle when it's time to add water to the tree at a certain point. I've seen little stickers you put on your bathroom vanity mirror to check the water in the tree today. There are other kind of devices. There are some long funnels that make it much easier to water. They're somewhat decorative. They're about 35 or 6 inches in length. You can place those in the tree, and you don't have to bend over and crawl under the tree to add water. You just look at the water bowl, pour water down the funnel, and it takes care of itself. There are even some automatic watering devices that will move water in the tree from a container alongside siphon or pump it over into the tree display bowl. I would not display the tree next to the fireplace, obviously. I would not put it over a heating duct that comes out from the floor. The room where we display our tree is kind of a large sunroom. We keep it a little bit cooler in there than we do elsewhere just because of trying to reduce the evaporation or the transpiration of water from the foliage of that tree. If this all is done, fresh cut tree, kept watered, no problem keeping it, particularly a fir tree, for at least four weeks. That's kind of the typical Thanksgiving to Christmas period of of display. The season's over and it's time to dispose of the tree. What's the best way to do that? Well, obviously you undecorate it. (laughs) Sometimes uh, I have seen trees laying along the curb that have not been undecorated, and I have actually seen trees with stands uh, still attached to the tree itself. That, of course, is a mistake. It's not good for the recycling opportunity. I would suggest that if there's not a local use for that tree as cutting it up or chipping it through a chipper that you may have at the house, and some of us have wood chippers that will chip branch trimmings and things of that sort, which we'll use for mulch, and that's certainly a possibility. Many communities will have a drop-off point where you, you can take the tree there, leave it there, and they will then come in, they being the community or its appropriate people in that community infrastructure, will chip that tree along with many others use that as mulch. Some cases you can take it back home if you want it for your garden or for flower beds or things of that sort. Or others will use it in the community to align parks and walkways and other public planting sites with wood chips. There are a few communities that will collect trees. This is particularly true where there are large lakes in the area and they will bind those trees together in this part of the country and take the trees out on the ice after Christmas and attach some weights to them so that they will literally sink when the ice smells. And the reason for that is to provide a fish spawning habitat. That's been quite successful in being able to promote increased fisheries in some of those lakes. There are others who will use discarded tree in some public hunting grounds and will make brush piles for certain kinds of animals like rabbits, perhaps other kinds of deer blinds, things of that sort, where they will be there the following year. They will eventually decompose. It's a way of using that tree beyond its just initial display period in the house. Every year there seems to be this talk of a shortage of trees. Is that just promotion or is that ever a reality? 
regularly at this point, if you were to look on various websites and whatever, there's a constant request from would-be retailers, our established retailers, need 500 trees six to eight feet in height, need 1,000 trees of this species, need this. Does anyone have this? And they are not finding those species. And some people are going to have a shortage at their retail lot because they cannot find trees and didn't order early enough or they're simply not out there. Tell us about one of the more memorable moments you observed a family in their tree purchasing process. Oh, there are several of those. One I remember specifically, this is a little bit judgmental and I don't like to be that way, but you can sometimes tell the economic well-being of an individual by how they dress and their clothing and the kids that they come along with them. And I remember a single mother who obviously was economically challenged. A few years ago, they came through our farm, and she had a couple of small children. They were maybe 8, 9, 10, and they wanted a natural Christmas tree. They walked around, and we pre-price, as many other choose-and-cut operations do. Every tree that is for sale is tagged in the field, priced according to the quality of the tree, the species of the tree, the height of the tree, a number of attributes that go into it that are evaluated by someone who knows what Christmas tree pricing should be and what the attributes that people look for are. We have some fairly inexpensive trees, and we have some fairly expensive trees, depending on the species and the size. This lady was obviously looking for an inexpensive tree. She happened to find a tree and brought it up, and it was not a very good tree quality-wise. But at our location, we have shakers, we have multiple baling stations, we pre-drill trees, we trim the trees for the customer, we do a number of things. We wrap them, we drill them for pre-pin-type stands and things of that sort. I happened to be running on one of our balers that day, and I was baling the tree, and this lady and her children came to my baling station. I don't know what the tree was. It maybe was a $20 tree or a $25 tree. As I ran it through the baler, the kids were just ecstatic about having a real tree. I got it wrapped up, baled, and handed it over to her. And I said, you know, every so often, we give away a free tree. And it just happens that your number came up for this particular tree. This tree is not going to cost you anything. And when you go to the pay booth over there, you tell them Mel said this tree is free and it will cost you nothing. She started tearing up a little bit because it was just such a heartwarming experience to me, but it was such a real experience to her that she didn't have to pay the 20 or the $25 for that tree. Those are the kind of things that you remember. We do give away a lot of things. Christmas is about giving, and that's one of the things that uh, we make a very strong point in. We just try to accommodate people, and again, at the risk of being judgmental, you can often tell who will be economically challenged to buy that product and who will be eternally grateful when you give it to them for free or at a reduced price. Sometimes people don't have a stand for the tree, and so if you buy this tree, this stand is included. It'll be an acceptable stand, but it, again, takes the cost factor out and conveys, in my mind, the Christmas spirit. That, again, goes back to our discussion earlier. It's Christmas. Keep it real. And that's what we try to do. And so those are memorable things, but I remember that lady in particular, and those children just were ecstatic that we had made some contribution to their Christmas season. I can see that in my mind, the season of giving. Someone asked me one time, well, why do you do this Christmas tree business? Uh, you're not as young as you used to be. Uh, you spend a lot of time out there working. Uh, neighbors across the street will say, Mel, do you ever not spend a day working? And I said, well, we're trying to produce a quality product. 
and we're going to spend as much time as we can to accomplish that objective. Someone says, well, why do you do this? You don't have to have all the money that generates from that or whatever. I said, you know, one of the things that I think is important is that at the end of the season, I can look back and say, this year we made 7,500 families celebrate the most festive day of the year and the festive occasion of the year around the product that we produced that is the centerpiece of that celebration. I said, there's a certain sense of satisfaction in my mind that comes from that. And I take a lot of personal satisfaction from being able to do that. Again, I'll go back to the Christmas, it's keep it real. It's got some meaning in there, which to me is so synonymous with what Christmas is all about. I was fascinated to see how old you were. You're in your 80s, right? Yeah, 84. Yeah. It's, someone says age is only a number. And yeah, I would agree with that. And it shows up occasionally, but I don't pay much attention to that. I have a job to do. Let's get it done. Yeah. We loaded out a load of big trees this morning. We cut some more trees this afternoon. I ran a chainsaw, ran an elevator, ran uh, tractors, uh, will run balers. Did that yesterday. It doesn't slow me down at this point too much. So that's good. How about the environmental connection with growing Christmas trees? Let's talk about that. Okay. That's an interesting topic, and you can approach it from two differing perspectives. Those of us who are naturalists think we're pretty environmentally friendly, and we can attribute and to the production of Christmas trees many des- desirable environmental contribution. Christmas trees, for example, absorb carbon dioxide because it's one of the raw materials for the photosynthetic process that produces carbohydrates and sugars, among other kind of things, and starches. And that's basically what a tree lives on. It makes its own food. So it's very environmentally friendly in producing oxygen, which we breathe, and absorbing carbon dioxide, which is a gas that is blamed, I put that in quotes, for many adverse environmental conditions in our environment. But at the same time, we enhance the landscape. We have a couple of houses across the road from our farm. We have 180 acres where we are, so we're all one fairly large block. A couple of years ago, I took this as a compliment. A house across the street from where we are, small house, was advertised and listed as for sale. One of the components they advertised in that listing was across the road from a Christmas tree farm, (laughs) which I thought was kind of a compliment to us in a backhanded fashion because the realtor obviously identified that as a desirable component. And the house sold, and I don't know whether that was a deciding factor or not, but nonetheless, it, it did occur. With regard to other things that trees do, you know, they hold the soil in place. They provide an excellent wildlife habitat. We have many, many more deer in our Christmas trees than we would like to have. They cause significant damage in the winter, particularly if we have a heavy snow accumulation. Feed on some trees. They do a lot of, this time of the year, antler rubbing. The bucks do on trees and cause some deformation there. We have great rabbit populations. We have Lots of songbirds that nest in those. We have doves. We have, you know, a number of things that are desirable from that point of view. Christmas trees are completely recyclable. There's no metal involved in that, so they can be chipped. And we have chipping locations here in the greater central Michigan area that will take trees and use our spent Christmas trees, and they will run them through a chipper, and they go into parks. They go into a number of things where those chips are recycled, or some even put them into compost piles and do that as well. There are other attributes, I think, that in terms of scenery and enhancement and just the aesthetics of having trees, 
They provide employment, all of the revenue that comes from the individuals who work in that field. It's local, so they're out trimming trees or they're planting trees or they're helping in the harvest of trees. There are a number of economic benefits that accrue from those as well. On the contrast, the artificial tree comes from non-renewable resources, primarily petroleum and its derivatives and some of the basic metals, aluminum and probably even some steel. Those products made into plastics, which sometimes are not very biodegradable, but can be recycled, although usually not when there's metal involved with them. They're produced, for the most part, not in this country. There are some exceptions to that. So the economic contributions that come from those do not benefit any local community other than perhaps the hardware store that might sell a few or the uh, local Home Depot manager that might be there realizing some benefit from selling Christmas trees. The primary economic benefit from that goes back to primarily Asian markets. And so there's not an economic contribution which comes locally from that. I think increasingly so, that's a factor that has contributed to the increased popularity of choose and cut operations because it's kind of a continuation of this buy local model that seems to be very popular, and we certainly approve of that. To me, it's not a significant argument, I think, that the natural tree stands hand down. Now, the other part of this discussion is that, well, yes, someone drives there. They're using fossil fuels to drive there. You're mowing in your fields. You're using fossil fuels. You're using equipment that is unique to that particular location, and that particular crop you're producing doesn't have a retail value for garden centers or things of that sort. So you're not benefiting the local economy because you have to buy that material from a specialty shop and that may be out of state, things of that sort. There's some discussion and some components that might have relative merit there that there is a slight cost. But I think if you look at the local economic benefits and the local environmental benefits, that natural trees, real trees have a greater contribution to the environment than artificial tree does. I don't know what the average life expectancy of an artificial tree is. I would suspect somewhere between 5 and 10 years, but that's just an estimate. I don't have any data which would say that. I do know that in the current year, I have heard that artificial tree prices will be up about 25 to 30% because of transportation concerns and the limited supply and the inability to get large numbers here from Asia. So I guess that will translate into maybe fewer of those being used and maybe increase the demand for real Christmas trees, but that remains to be seen. I think a lot of people, too, will take an artificial tree and just throw it away after one season just because they don't have a place to store it. I think that's probably true. Artificial trees, in many ways, my opinion, do not represent a good economic investment. If you're going to buy a $150 tree and just discard it at the end of the Christmas season, that seems to me a a little bit short-sighted, but that's an opinion. That's not a fact. If some people can afford to do that, fine. And they would also argue, well, why should I spend $75 for a real Christmas tree, which is only going to be a benefit for four weeks, five weeks, or whatever the length of the display period is? And my response to that is, That's four to five weeks longer than the $75 the two of you spent for a meal at an upscale restaurant that had a duration contribution of maybe 12 hours or something of that sort, you know. So it's, uh, but that's an opinion that's not not a fact, but it's all relative, you know. uh, Our values depend on 
what we value it as. And I can't tell you what the contributions are of a grandfather coming with his son and then with grandchildren and selecting a tree and how that grandchild responds to that tree. One of the things that we do in our particular operation, we let people cut their own trees. We have saws that we provide for that. When they cut that tree, they assume responsibility for that tree. We have wagons and we have processing locations in the field so that tree will be shaken and drilled and wrapped up, bundled. They transport it on wagons that we've put together that are designed to have them handle the tree and carry the tree in its all-compact form, and that works extremely well for us. Once a tree is selected and given back to the party, they assume possession for that, and they are extremely protective of that tree. They want to make certain that no one gets it confused with something else. Someone will stand on the wagon and hold it with their arm around it and keep it together. There's a value which has been transferred from that tree standing in the field when it was mine to now it's theirs. And they are extremely happy with that. And I think that implies a sense of satisfaction that probably is much to be remembered during the upcoming display period. You remember when we got this tree? You remember what Johnny did over here? You remember how many pictures were taken over there? You remember when we had it drilled back there and we had it shaken over here? You remember the bird nest that came out of it? Those are the kind of comments you hear. I can't put an economic value on it, but it certainly has some family value. Oh, yeah. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? You know, I would suspect a couple of other professors in the Department of Forestry when I was actively engaged there. A gentleman by the name of Lester Bell, who is deceased, long gone, was a mentor and who had given me guidelines. He was uh, an individual who was just very pragmatic. He talked about reality. He knew economic contributions. He believed in Christmas trees from the standpoint as an economic endeavor. He said, well, you can do this. You can plant trees there. This is a good location. Planting something today for a market that is Nine years down the road takes a little bit of courage, I think. He just said, you can do this. You can make it happen. He knew the market. He knew the Christmas season. He was you know, 20 years older than I was. He just had a lot of pragmatism again that he shared with me and that had a major influence on our success. I owe a lot to him for helping us get this operation off the ground. What is your most valuable growing mistake? Well, the one you live with for the next 10 years, and I would summarize that by saying planting the right tree on the wrong site, the wrong soil, the wrong location, the wrong frost pocket, the wrong soil chemistry location. We have learned over the years, and I think any successful grower does this, most of our trees are, except for replants, are planted with the machine. We lay out plantations very meticulously. We have rows that are just straight. They're measured off the spacing, six feet between any two and among several rows. We plant them in 16-row blocks, and some of those rows of trees may be a quarter of a mile long. We have some that could be a half mile long. But the soils, particularly in the state that we live in, are very variable within a very short space of distance. I do all the planting. I ride the planter And I've kind of learned to read the soils, that is, by the texture, and maybe you look at the topography a little bit. And as opposed to planting Fraser fir from point A to point Z, 
I will carry two or three species of trees, including concolor fir, which we haven't talked much about, but another true fir. Some of the canane fir species are plants on the machine, and Fraser fir. Everywhere we can grow Fraser fir, that's our first priority. We want to get all of that that we can possibly do and grow, because that's the most popular species, economically, most profitable species, but it has to be done right. As I sit on the planter, and as I kind of look at the soil coming through from the, the coulter and the planting furrow that is made, I will change a species when I see a change in soil texture, and we'll put Fraser fir on the sandier loam soils. As it gets a little heavier, we'll move into canane fir and plant that. And then as we get on a higher elevation, we'll plant concolor fir. The highest point on our farm from the lowest elevation to the top is about 12 feet difference. So we're basically flat. We have very limited topography, but we have matched those species onto their preferred sites. And as a result, our yield has gone up significantly. So we don't lose as many trees by putting a Fraser fir all the way from A to C and watching them die in the lower spot and watching them die on the upper hill from lack of water or things of that sort. We have learned to do that, and I think any grower who has been around the block for a rotation or so does exactly the same thing. He avoids, she avoids mistakes made by putting the right tree, but in the wrong location, because it will not make a quality tree that will sell. Maybe the other mistake I made, I should have started this a little bit earlier, you know, in my <laughs> career. It helped, it helped get the kids through school. When you're in your 30s and a couple of kids running around and they're growing and you've got clothing expenses and food expenses and school expenses and entertainment expenses and finally thinking about college, if I would have started 10 years earlier, assuming I could have afforded it, there would have been a better decision. But I'm not going to second guess that. Everything has worked out well from the time that we did what do you see in the future for real Christmas trees? I'm very optimistic about the future of Christmas trees, real Christmas trees, natural Christmas trees. And the reason being, I think as we become a little more economically stable in terms of an individual family or so, it's those kind of intangible things that we do that make memories, that make lasting events. And to me, selecting a, a real tree to celebrate the most significant event of the year with regard to a holiday perspective and do it as a together function is something that is just worth doing. We don't celebrate hardly any other event emotionally. Everybody is there, and it's kind of warm and fuzzy, if I can use that metaphor. Those are the things that last. I mean, I think most of us could go back and talk about going to Christmas at Grandma's house. We could go there when our mom and dad's house. We can talk about putting the train set around the Christmas tree. And my brother and I did that. We had icicles on the tree. The icicles would fall down on the tracks and short out the train. I remember those vividly. That was a long time ago, and I still remember those events. I remember in grade school, we had a Christmas tree in the classroom, and the kids got the decorator. It wasn't a Martha Stewart decorating job. It was uh, one in which we kind of hung the ornaments where we could reach them, and then we would throw the icicles up on the top of the tree, and they were in bunches and not very artistic, but we had a great time. That was, again, a Christmas memory. Those stay with you. I can't remember much about other holidays. I don't think I have any Labor Day memories at all. Not to badmouth any of those or to be discriminatory against other holidays. I'm, I'm all for them. These are things that live with us for a very long time, and I think that's good. 
This has been Episode 85, Real Christmas Tree Stories with Dr. Mel Kelling, an encore remix presentation of Episode 33 on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Mel. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.